going uh, non-pressed. And so over the next, I honestly have no idea over the next how many. Uh, it could be four weeks. And now if you know me, you know this kills me. Because I am a planner and normally have it all figured out. And uh, over the summer, God kind of put some messages on my heart. And as I started exploring these ideas in the scriptures, I realized like this is a 27-week series. <laughs> So, and it very well might be, um, it, I, I think we'll be finished in time for Christmas, but we're just going to kind of wait and see, okay? So, here's, here's the deal. Jesus is not impressed by how awful you are or how awesome you are, but wherever you are and whatever you think you got going on for you or you got going against you, he sees you and he is moved to action to draw you into his family. And so what we're going to do over the next however long is we're going to look at examples of Jesus interacting with people, some of whom are at their very lowest moments in life, where they think nobody cares, nobody sees, nobody wants anything to do with them. The only thing they deserve is God's judgment, and Jesus reaches out in grace and mercy. And then we're going to see some other times where people think they've got it all together and Jesus should be so impressed with them and so happy with them and he comes and just kind of brings the thunder, right? And lets them know you're not as good as you think you are, you're not as righteous as you think you are, you are just as lost as the most lost person you know. And so we're going to kind of work our way through these different and, and probably kind of weave back and forth between the two extremes, but, but this morning what I want to do is we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 15 and kind of just see how Jesus presents these two ideas to us. Uh, it doesn't matter how awful you are. It doesn't matter how awesome you are. You are loved by God, and he has a place for you in his family. Uh, about, about a month ago, Angie and I were invited to a, a meeting with a couple other pastors and their spouses. And the guy who was putting it on is a, a pastor of a church that I've always kind of admired from afar. Um, I've known a lot about him. I've heard him preach at different events and conferences that I've been to and, and just always um, enjoyed hearing from him and been impressed by the things his church is doing, the way they're reaching their community. And uh, so when I got an email from him, I was pretty surprised uh, for a couple reasons. First of all, I was surprised that he had any idea of who I was, um, which turns out he didn't, but he had got my name from a friend. So that made more sense. Um, and, and then the, the other reason I was surprised was he said he was gathering a group of young pastors that he wanted to invest in. And I was surprised that he still thought I was young. And so that was another, like, yes, all right, apparently in some circles, 37 is still a spring chicken. Uh, so I'm not going to tell him different. And I got my hair cut before I went, so there wasn't as much gray there. Um, so you think I'm joking, but I'm not. I went the day before. I'm like, if this young pastor is, we going to get rid of some of this. Uh, you know, I, I got a high schooler now, not as young. Anyway, so so we go there. And I don't know if you've ever been in a, a situation with someone where you, you kind of look up to them, they've kind of been a, a mentor from a distance, whether they know it or not. And there's this little bit of pressure that comes with it of like, man, I, I hope I, and this is a real fear for me, I hope I don't stick my foot in my mouth. I hope I don't say anything I shouldn't say. I hope when I get nervous, I make jokes, and they're not always the most appropriate. And so it's so just kind of all this. And so, so we go there, and it's, it's the opening uh, session. There's about 10 of us pastors from uh, just kind of all over the Midwest, and none of us know each other. And he starts to talk to us. He says, Good, look, guys, I'm, I'm glad you're here. We're there with our spouses. He says, I'm, I'm thrilled you're here. In a minute, we're going to go around the room. I want you to introduce yourself. Tell us about your family. Tell us about your church. He says, we are here to celebrate your successes and to mourn your difficulties, but we are all on the same team. Now, I've been in pastor's meetings before where that has been spoken 
but it was not meant, right? And what it what it turns into is kind of this one-upsmanship of like, well, this is how many we have, and this is how many, this is and this. And so uh, this guy, he was it, it was brilliant. I don't know if he had planned it ahead of time or if it was just kind of spirit spider that moment. But he said, before we start, you need to know something. I am not impressed by anything you've done, and I'm not impressed by any way that you failed. He said, so we're here. We are all on the same team. And we're going to celebrate the things that you're good at. I don't care if you saw five people saved last year or you saw 5,000 people saved. We're going to celebrate every single one of them. And he said, and, and your failures are not going to repel me. Like I've, I've walked through the dark valley myself. I've been through it with some other people. So if life is terrible right now, you can be really honest about that too. We're going to mourn with you. And, and it was the entire dynamic of that room changed when he spoke those words of, I'm just not impressed by your successes or your failures. And it really set us free. It, it was the most life-giving event like that that I've ever been a part of. Because it, it was like we could all kind of look at each other and everybody could relax and say, okay, it's fine for me to just be me here. It's fine for me to be honest about where I am. And, and for Angie and I, it was such a great experience. Like God spoke as clearly to us over the course of that day as he probably has at, at any point in our life and ministry about who we are, about the things that we need in our life. And I, I really believe it was because this, this space was created where it was okay to just acknowledge right where you are and to acknowledge, hey, we're all on the same team. No matter what you're going through, we're going to push forward together. And so what I want to do for us this morning is see how Jesus presents us with that same idea. In Luke 19, Jesus makes this really short statement. He's talking about himself, about his purposes and his plans. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Right? And so what Jesus is trying to help us understand, and we'll see it all throughout this series, is it doesn't matter if you're a bum or you think you're an all-star. He is seeking after you. From Jesus' point of view, there are two categories of people, the lost and the found. And that's it. Right? And so you can be sitting on your highest mountaintop this morning, successful in every area of life. And if you don't have Jesus, he says, not impressed, you're lost. Or you could be in your lowest valley today. Just Your life is a complete and total train wreck. And Jesus looks at it and thinks, I'm, I'm not impressed. I'm not repelled. You're just lost. And so he's telling us, look, I came that the lost would be found. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Luke chapter 15. And, and it's a story that if you've been around church very much, you have heard it so many times. Uh, it's a story of, it, in fact, in your Bible, it probably says the prodigal son, or it says the parable of the lost son, the story of the lost son. Um, in reality, though, it, it should probably be called the story of the loving father, or the story of the loving father and his two idiot sons, right? Would probably be like if, if the NIV ever called me and said, can you help us with some subtitles? Like, I got one. Uh, they want to print it. But anyways, it, it would be a good one because it's, it's a story. So, so we're going to read through it or kind of refer to it throughout the morning. But it's basically, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's a story of a loving father who has two sons. One of them is awful and one of them is pretty sure that he's awesome. But the whole point of the story is that the father loves his sons. He wants them to live in relationship with him, and he wants them to live in relationship with each other. And their actions do not stop his love or his continual invitation for them to come back into the family and to find their place. 
Right, so, so this the first son is the, that we're going to talk about this morning is actually the younger son. And the younger son is awful. So when we, we pick up this story here in Luke 15, verse 11, it says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he comes to him, and, and the first thing you've got to understand is when you start down this path of awfulness, the first lie you're going to fall for is that your awfulness is acceptable. And now, now the statement he makes, we're removed culturally from it, but it doesn't take too, too much work for us to understand the offensive nature of it. For a son to come to his father and say, Dad, give me my inheritance, is the same thing as saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. But since you won't hurry up and die, can I just have your stuff? Now, now we all understand, if you're a father, you understand that conversation is not going to go well. I think the response is almost always going to be, no, no, get out of my sight, right? Like, you, you, even in saying, like, you said, give me, your, give me my share of your estate. Like, you're even acknowledging, this is my stuff, and you just can't wait for me to die. I'm not going to do it. And so for the, the younger son, he kind of has to go through this, this process in his mind where he somehow convinces himself that one of the most offensive things he could say to his father is okay. He doesn't just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I think today is the day. Today's the day I look at my dad, who's cared for me since I was a child, who's cared for our family. Today's the day I walk in the living room, I look him in the eye and say, I wish you were dead, give me your money. He doesn't do that. But it's most likely a process of over days and weeks, months, maybe even years, of this, this slow hardening of his heart, this slow deception where he has started to convince himself I deserve this, it belongs to me, it should be mine. And as he kind of goes down, eventually he gets to the point where he decides, okay, even though everything in our culture says my behavior, my request is unacceptable and offensive, I've decided it's okay for me. Now for you and I, we, we never just kind of wake up one morning and realize my life is a mess. I've destroyed everything. I've destroyed everyone. I've wronged those that I've loved. I've done things I never thought I would have done. But just like that younger son, all of our slide into awfulness always begins with lies we tell ourselves. That, well, this behavior, sure, you know, it, it might be wrong for some people, but it's okay for me. This might be, this might be uh, at odds with the way I was raised, but if, if people understood what I was going through, then it would be okay for me. You don't just wake up one day and realize you've fallen off the cliff of sin. But little step by step, you kind of move closer and closer and closer. And the first step is always believing that your unacceptable behavior is acceptable. And sometimes the enemy will even deceive us to the point where we become convinced that God himself doesn't care about this anymore. Of, oh, well, those are just some old rules he gave people a long time ago. That's not really relevant to where we live or how we live today. Relationships don't work like that anymore. That with technology, we've kind of advanced beyond that. And we begin to believe this lie that our awfulness is acceptable. And, and here's the really interesting thing about it. The father gives the son what he wants. And he, he recognizes, hey, you're a grown man. And so if, if this is really your desire, then I'm going to let you do it. And God does the same thing with us, right? He's given us free will. He gives us the ability to choose. He gives us the ability to look him in the eye and say, I know who you are. I know what you've created me for. And I am willfully going to choose this path instead. 
And as a loving father, his heart breaks and mourns as we start down that path of destruction, but he lets us walk it out. And, and what you find as you start to walk out your awfulness is it's, it's actually kind of fun. And so the young son, he gets his money, he says he moves off to a, a foreign country and he begins to squander his wealth in wild living. He's throwing parties, he's the life of the party. We find out later he's wasting a bunch of money on prostitutes. He is just fully engaged. And, and what some of us know from, from our life and our story is that wild living is actually fun for a season. It's, it's enjoyable, right? We can't lie about that. Like parents, you can't lie to your kids and tell them sin's not fun because they're going to find out it is. And you know what's fun? It's fun to do whatever I want, whenever I want. It's fun to spend all my money, all on me, all of the time. It's fun to give what I want in every single relationship. It's fun to not worry about what other people think or how my actions might affect them. It's fun to live like I'm the king of the world. And this is what the younger son is doing. He's just saying, hey, I'm going I'm to dive all in. And sometimes in, our, in those kind of wild living days, we can become convinced that we're enjoying this so much, God wouldn't want anything to do with us anyways. We think we've found this new path, this new kind of enlightenment of like, man, this is great, this is awesome. When I just give in to everything all the time, my soul finds joy. But eventually what you find is your soul doesn't find joy. It found pleasure, but the pleasure was fleeting. It doesn't take long before you start to figure out I'm ruining every relationship. I'm squandering every resource. And God, in his grace, he allows us to pursue this foolish path. But he also allows us to experience the consequences of it. So for the younger son, he eventually discovers his awfulness is unsustainable. So as he gets to the point where he has squandered all of his wealth, so he spent every last dime, it appears that once his money was gone, his friends were gone too. And then a famine strikes the land where he's living, which, which in an agricultural society means the entire economy crashes. So there's no place for him to work. There's no way for him to get back home. He's just broke. He's alone. And he's, he's having to recognize this is all my fault. And, and, and God brings us to this space as well. When we engage in an awful lifestyle of, of opposition to him, of willful disobedience to him, God will let us walk that path, and he will also let us experience the consequences of our behavior. And this is where some of us get stuck, because we think, well, if God really loves me, then why is he making my life so bad right now? And it, but it's not it at all. He's just saying, look, you, this is what you wanted. You wanted me to get out of your life, and now this is what that looks like. You wanted to chart your own path. This is where it has taken you. You wanted to be the king and the ruler. This is your dominion. An absolute train wreck. And that for us, that there kind of comes this point where we just have to lean into that pain. Right, we can't medicate it anymore. We can't ignore it. We can't explain it away. But we've just got to sit down in this space and stop seeing the consequences of our actions as the signs of God's judgment and start seeing them as signs of his mercy and his grace. Jesus loves you too much to let you enjoy your sin forever. And so when you start to experience that pain, that hurt, it's fine. Lean into it, but lean into it knowing in every hurt, in every pain, in every darkness, Jesus comes and begins to give glimmers of hope and is going to lead you out. 
When I was a, a kid, my grandpa had this old side-by-side um, -side double barrel shotgun. It was a 12 gauge, and if you've ever seen that, it was one of those really, really old styles where it had two separate triggers on it. So one trigger for the right barrel, one trigger for the left barrel. And we would go out to his farm, and he would take, I had two other cousins who we were all born within about six months of each other. So he would take the three boys out, and he would always he'd get the pickup, and he'd lay out the guns on the tailgate. And we loved it. It was our time to shoot with Grandpa. And we would always start small and kind of work our way up. So you'd shoot the 22, right? Then you'd shoot the 410. Then you'd shoot the 20 gauge. Then you have the 3030 and you'd shoot it. And always at the end of the line was the double barrel shotgun. And my grandpa had a standing offer for us, probably from the time we were about 10 years old, of, hey, boys, anybody who's brave enough to pull both triggers gets 20 bucks. <laughs> And man, we would sit there and just, I mean, you know, it's, it's 1992, $20 is a lot of money. We were broke, we didn't have jobs. $20, my grandpa was a super cheapskate, so the fact that he was offering $20 to us was a sign, this is gonna hurt. Like this is not, grandpa doesn't mess around. $20 might as well be $2,000 to him. And so if he's offering 20 bucks, we were smart enough to know, and we were trying to goad each other into it. But come on, man, if you're, if you're a real man, right, 10-year-olds out there, if you're a real man, uh, you're like, shoot, pull both triggers, uh, and none of us will do it. And none of us ever did it, because we were terrified of the pain. Now, now here's the thing. If, if you took me out there today and honestly told me, hey, like, 15 bucks if you pull both triggers, no problem, man. I'll pull them, and I'll pull them twice, because I know like, it's going to hurt a little bit, but it's not going to kill me. But as a little kid... I actually thought I might die. I thought, like, this is going to blow my arm off. Grandpa's too cheap to take me to the doctor. Mom and dad aren't here. Like, then, you know, it just, we, we had this picture in mind of what would happen. And so no one ever did. And for some of us, when we start to experience the consequences of our sin, we get stuck in that space of we're not willing to lean into the pain no matter what the promised reward is on the other side. We start to learn from the story of the younger sons that when you get to that point, you just got to pull both barrels. And you got to acknowledge my life is a mess and it's all my fault. Right? And, and as you pull those, what you're going to find is, yes, it hurts, but you're also going to start to see it doesn't kill you. And you're going to start to see a glimmer of hope on the other side. So the younger son, he's here. There's famine. He, he's to the point of he's caring for pigs and thinking, man, maybe I can just eat the food the pigs are eating. But in his most awful moment, he has this kind of aha moment. And, and it's not just in him. It's not just natural. But what we're learning from the story is that in our lowest moment, God still speaks. And he's always reminding us, before you made any of these mistakes, you belong to me. And there's another way possible. And so he begins to get this glimmer of hope. And he understands my awfulness is not the end. And there, there's another way possible. And he thinks back to the home he grew up in. And he thinks, my father... He has servants who, they have a roof over their head, they have clothes on their back, they have plenty of food, and, and so he kind of concocts this whole story of, I'm just going to go back and tell my father, look, I'm not worthy to be your son, but can I just be your servant? Can I just live on the edges of the property? Can I just, I don't need to come in the house, but can I just work so that I can eat? 
Right? And in our lowest moments, when we finally get to that space of, I'll just, I'll pull both triggers, I'll, I'll acknowledge it's my fault, and it's a mess, and, and there's nothing I can do about it. In that space, Jesus always comes. And he always begins to speak words of life and words of hope and words of comfort to us. And, and in a minute, we'll get to the father's response to the younger son. But, but before we do, so kind of spoiler, the, the son goes home and the father welcomes him in and throws this big, massive party for him. Well, the, the other character in our story is the older son. And the older son sees what's going on. He sees the party that's being thrown and he, he starts to think, what's, what's going on? So he goes and asks one of the servants. They said, hey, you're good news. Your younger brother's home. And so your, your dad's throwing this massive party. And the older son's response is not, that's awesome, I can't wait. It says in, in verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now, the older brother, he had checked all of the boxes. And he, he showed up every day. He went to work on time. He worked until the job was done. He showed his father the respect that he deserved. And yet, as, as we kind of worked our way through the story, we see that the older brother isn't as righteous, isn't as awesome as he thinks he is. Because he's, he's kind of fallen in love with this false view of himself. And this false view of himself has corrupted his view of the father. Because instead of looking at his dad as my father who loves me, my father who gives me all that he has, he begins to see his father as I serve you so you give me what I want. And what is supposed to be a loving father-child relationship turns into an economic transaction. Dad, I'm going to do what you want so that one day I can have it and do what I want. And it's not exposed, though, until the older brother has an opportunity to compare himself once again with the younger brother. And so he, he begins to compare and he begins to look and say, well, I've done this, my little brother's done this, and, and his comparison leads to arrogance. I was, I was reading an article last week and it, it kind of combined those two ideas and talked about this, this idea of a comparagance trap. And it, it's such a beautiful description of what happens to us when we start looking down our nose at other people. And I mean, we've got to be real, right? This is extremely tempting and prevalent in the church. Because on the one hand, we're going to stand over here and we're going to say, hey, it doesn't matter if you're awful, if you're terrible, come to Jesus. He's going to heal you. He's going to save you. And we believe it and we celebrate it. And then over here, there's this little part of our heart that's like, man, isn't that awesome that they're, they've been set free from their addiction. They, even though they ruined their marriage, they're still coming back to Jesus. Isn't that wonderful that Jesus can do that? And isn't it wonderful that I didn't do what they did? And isn't it wonderful, God, that I didn't fail you like they did? And isn't it wonderful that I've remained faithful to my spouse? And isn't it wonderful that I've never lost my job? And isn't it wonderful that my kids have never rebelled? And so what should be a celebration turns into an opportunity of revealing the poison that's in our heart. And, and, and this, this is one of the most disgusting temptations that we can give into. It's that idea of, of comparing, of comparing myself to someone else and feeling arrogant about the results. It ruins my view of God. It distorts my view of myself. And it ruins my relationships with others. 
So when I begin to look down at others and, and feel impressed with who I am, it changes my view of God. Because I now think, well, surely in God's eyes, there are also two classifications. There's me, and there's everybody else. And he must be awful happy to have me on his team. Right? He must, Jesus, he, he and God must go to bed at night and just look down and be like, man, that Chris down. What would we do without him? He actually is. I mean, there have been a lot of people in 2,000 years, but that one, that one, we did it good with that one. Right? And then we start, and you'll never verbalize that because when you do, you realize how ridiculous it sounds. And you realize, like, no, that's, there's lots of people in the world who are better than me. There's lots of people who accomplish more than me. But if I spend all of my time comparing my best moments to others' worst moments, and suddenly I can see here. Now, now we talk a lot with social media about, hey, don't, don't, don't spend all your time comparing your regular everyday life to someone else's highlight reel. That's true. But don't spend all your time comparing your best moments to the absolute train wrecks of someone else's life. Because when I do that, and, and here's the thing, in church, we have opportunities to do that because we get a front row seat to the train wreck that sin causes. Right? So I can go to Royal Family Kids Camp and I can serve kids in foster care and I can walk home with my shoulders back and my head held high and think I might not be the best parent, but my kids have never been taken away. I can sit in a counseling session with a couple who their marriage is falling apart and I can go home and, and I can still maybe ignore my wife and I can be short with her, but I, I do it with pride and with confidence. Because I'm not as bad as that guy I talked to this afternoon. Right? We, we look at our finances and, and we're not as generous maybe as we would like to be. But we don't have the gambling problem that she does. And what winds up happening is we get this really distorted view of ourselves. And the bigger you get in your own eyes, the smaller Jesus gets in your heart. And eventually you get to the point that the older son's at where you're just pretty convinced of like, not only do I not need a savior, but God, you owe me. I've worked hard. I nail that annual Bible reading plan. Right? I don't I go to church on Sundays. I serve. I serve in one service and worship in the other. I go to the home group, I do the things, I check the boxes. And God, because I checked your boxes, now I've got a list of things that you need to do for me. And when you get into that space, God is, is no longer your loving father. You just turned him into like your little genie that you've made some kind of arrangement with. So, so we've got to be so careful. And then it distorts our view of others as well. Because we just look at other people in their worst moments and we judge their whole life by it. We say, well, if you failed in this area, you're, you're worthless. If you failed in this area, you're dead to me. If you've screwed this up, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. And when that ugliness is revealed, we usually still try to hide from it. Even this morning, for some of us, we, we read that story and we think, I'm not really the older brother or the younger brother. I'm the third brother. The one that just got it all right. I'm the one that, I'm the third, I'm the middle child. I, I was in my room praying for my younger brother and praying for my older brother and just doing whatever my dad needed to try to help you. Like we, we want to find, but Jesus doesn't give us that option. 
says, look, there's lost and there's found. And, and in this story, there's an older and there's a younger. And, and you've got to ask God, Lord, which one am I trending towards this morning? And just a little clue. A lot of times you wind up having pieces of both. Because the, the awesomeness that you're so convinced you have is actually a sign of the awfulness that lives in your heart. All the reasons you're convinced that you are number one is actually a revelation that you're at the bottom of the pile. That your mountaintop is actually the darkest valley. That you've been deceived into living this way. But here, here's the thing with both of them. So the younger brother decides, okay, I'm, I'm just going to go back. And I'm just going to see, maybe dad will just let me come back as a servant. And, and we can read the response here in verse 20. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. See, when you realize how awful you are and you turn back, what you find is God is watching for you and running towards you ready to say, let's get you out of this mess, and you might still deal with some of the consequences of it, but your identity is changed, and you come in as his son and his daughter. And then there's the older son. He's angry. He's outside the party. He doesn't want anything to do. The, the father doesn't come out yelling at him. The father doesn't come out saying, hey, what's wrong with you? Will you please straighten up and get back inside? But he comes to him, and he says, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, the, the truth is, it doesn't matter if you're awful or if you're awesome. Jesus is not impressed. But he's just moving towards you to say, you're my son, you're my daughter. Will you, will you just come in the party? We, so so if, if this morning he's revealing to you, your life's a mess and it's your fault, it's not to heap condemnation on you, but it's to invite you in. And if the Spirit's coming to you this morning saying, your self-righteousness is disgusting and repulsive, it's not to drive you away, it's to say, hey, recognize it and now come back in. Shane Claiborne writes about the way the gospel works. He says, the gospel is good news for sick people. And it's disturbing for those who think they've got it all together. Some of us have been told our whole lives that we are wretched. But the gospel reminds us that we are beautiful. Others of us have been told our whole lives that we are beautiful. But the gospel reminds us that we are wretched. See, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you're doing, who you're doing it with. The invitation of Jesus this morning is recognize it and then accept the invitation. You don't have to clean anything up. You don't have to make anything better. You don't even have to start making amends with other people. But we're just going to start by taking our spot. And what happens every single time is the moment you turn, the moment you begin to see like, man, I'm awful. It's a mess and it's all my fault. Or I'm self-righteous and I am judgmental and it is all my fault. In that space, when you turn and crowd, God, help me. What you find is he is there moving towards you already. And saying, hey, it's all right. 
You're my son. You're my daughter. Let's go. Let's get in the party. Let's celebrate with your brothers and sisters. Let's not just restore this relationship with God. Let's restore your relationships here. The promise of the gospel is that God makes all things new. But we have to come to the point of saying, Lord, I'm, I'm going to receive it. There's two categories. There's lost and there's found. And Jesus, I just want to be found by you. I just want to find my identity in you. If you'll stand with me, I want to pray for us this morning. Give us a chance to respond to what God is saying to us. If you're here this morning and, and you know your life is a mess, you identify with that younger son. You, you know the pain, you know the suffering, and you know it's your fault. Perhaps you're afraid to acknowledge your sin. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're terrified that the consequences of your confession will not be worth it. I want to encourage you this morning that the enemy of your soul comes to lie and deceive and keep your sin secret so he can keep you in bondage. Jesus already sees it, he already knows it, and he already has charted the path from where you are to where he wants you to be. But you've got to come to that point this morning where you're willing to lean into the pain, you're willing to take the step of faith, and not just say, Jesus, forgive me, but confess that sin to each other. To invite others into this process with you. That's you this morning, you're saying, hey, life is a mess in some areas, and I need Jesus to come. Will you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Jesus, you see us, you see our needs, you see our situations. Lord, I pray that you would give supernatural courage and faith this morning. That you have a purpose and you have a plan. That the, the consequences we are experiencing in our lives, they are, they are not signs of your judgment and your distance, but they are extensions of your mercy and your grace. You love us too much to let us live and enjoy our sin forever. So Holy Spirit, come and bring a conviction that is undeniable and inescapable. Lord, we're not looking for humiliation this morning. We're looking for freedom. We're asking you to come now that, Lord, we would know for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Lord, there is freedom. There is life. And Lord, I pray especially for those who are here today. And right now they're believing the lie. That to repent and to confess will ruin everything. Jesus, will you come in your power? Will you come in your grace? Will you let them see you as a loving father running towards them? Ready to say, welcome home. Receive your identity. Lord, remove the fear. Remove the uncertainty. God, we, we just pray against every lie, every deception that has taken root in hearts this morning, that has held us in bondage for years or decades. Lord, forgive us for not trusting your love. Forgive us for not believing your grace. Forgive us for thinking your restoration is for others. Jesus, come today and release your forgiveness. Release your freedom. Give us faith to walk in it. Lord, in whatever form bondage comes, whether it's sin or self-righteousness, we come to repent of it today. We come to ask you, Lord, just forgive us, restore us, renew us, cleanse us. Let every promise of the scriptures become the prophecy over our lives today.
that the one you set free will be completely free. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Some of our pastors and prayer team, they're going to be back in the prayer room out the doors to your left. I believe there are some of us this morning that God is speaking to powerfully and clearly. And I want to encourage you as strongly as I can. Make that walk out. Confess your sin. And let others join with you. And you're going to find God is ready to receive and to welcome, to restore and renew. When your sin loses its secrecy, it's going to lose its power in your life. So make those confessions. Pray those prayers of repentance. Lean into the pain knowing he's a good and loving father who has a new life for you on the other side. The rest of us, we're going to sing this song as a declaration of who God is, what he does for us. But again, if we respond out the back door,
has already accomplished for us. So as you go today, may you not only go with a personal confidence that you are God's son or his daughter, but may you go with a deep conviction that the same is true for every member of your family, every person who lives in your neighborhood, every coworker, every classmate. They are the sons and the daughters of God. No matter how awful or how awesome we might seem, our job is to continually respond to the Holy Spirit. Receiving His grace, receiving His identity, and sharing that with others. So may you go in God's grace, may you go in His peace, may you go with a firm conviction that He is your loving Father, chasing after 